gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Right? Welcome to Remarkable a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week... We're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour with Senior Director of Content Marketing at Love. Welcome to The Eras Tour. By the way, I'll be your host this evening. My name is Taylor. Kim, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Thrilled to have you here. Excited to chat about Taylor Swift. Obviously, you know, we're with a super fan, so it, it's going to be super exciting. We're going to talk marketing at Love and how you think about content and everything everything in between. So starting off here, why Taylor Swift? Why the era's tour? I mean, mother is mothering. (laughs) Taylor Swift is just like taking over the world, it feels right now. And, you know, I'm so inspired by her. Not only is she, you know, I'd say a relatively young person compared to me, but she's this incredible, you know, songwriter and performer. And let's face it, a marketer. She's brilliant. And, you know, most tours will promote a current album, right? And then sometimes later in a singer's career, they'll sort of do this like best of, right? Or greatest hits or like the final tour, like the Dead and Company are doing right now. But right now what Taylor's doing with the Eras tour is she's really celebrating her body of work across her 10 albums. I think that's pretty extraordinary for a singer who's 33 years old. So this is truly just a celebration of her career up until this point and kind of everything that she has navigated throughout that. And zooming out, tell us a little bit about what you do at Lob. Yeah, so I head up content marketing and help create everything that is kind of prospect and customer facing, whether that be case studies, eBooks, webinars, podcasts, um, all of the things that really help our prospects and customers get more value out of Lob. And for our listeners who don't know, tell us more about Lob. So Lob is an intelligent, automated direct mail platform. So helping to send direct mail to connect with consumers and add value to their customer journey. And we'll get way more into that later on in the episode. So Meredith, for for people who've been living under a rock, who the heck is Taylor Swift? Gosh, it's so hard to sum her up, honestly, in just a few words. She really is an icon, a cultural icon. But Taylor Swift is an American singer-songwriter who, as of today, has more number one albums than any other woman in history. I just saw this come out. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire for this show and many other shows at Caspian Studios. She has 12 in total, which beats out Barbara Streisand. And that's because her album, Speak Now, Taylor's version, debuted at number one this week. You need to hear me out. And they said, speak now. But she's a 33-year-old artist, as Kim was saying. She's originally from Pennsylvania, but is more known as being like a Nashville 
artist, and she was originally known for country music, but became known for her musical versatility and reinventing herself as an artist. I feel like she's more of like a pop artist now. But as a cultural figure, she has several high-profile news stories, um, including her dispute with her original record label, Big Machine Records, over ownership of the masters of her first six studio albums, which led her to re-recording all of them. And the one that just came out is the third of those original albums, so she has three more to do. And she had another legal battle with Apple in 2015 over protecting artist rights to fair compensation for their work. So she's really becoming this voice for all artists out there. As Kim said, she currently has 10 albums, has sold 114 million albums worldwide. She's won 12 Grammys, 19 Billboard Music Awards, which is the most for any woman 40 American Music Awards, and so many more. She's many trademarks, which a lot of fans follow, including she hides messages in her content, which I love, these like little Easter eggs. And it has to do with like how she wears her hair to her makeup to just like little messages everywhere. She frequently uses number 13, which is a lucky number for her. I was born on the 13th. I turned 13 on Friday the 13th. My first album went gold in 13 weeks. Also, thanks. (laughs) Um... My first song that ever went number one, mm-hmm. it had a 13-second intro. And I didn't even do that on purpose. She wears red lipstick. That's right. She goes barefoot. And her fans call themselves 50s. So she's inspired just like this massive culture and fandom around her music and who she is as a person. Kim, anything, anything to add there? Oh, that was an excellent summary. <laughs> and, you know, you alluded to the the like lawsuit and all of that stuff. And if you listen to the song Karma. She works so many things into her songs and karma definitely alludes to that in the relationship with the producer Scooter, who, you know, built his fortune off of her and things like that. So all the words and lyrics in her songs definitely like, you know, play into that. And even like Dear John about her relationship with John Mayer. And the only like, I'm sorry song she ever wrote was called Back to December. And it's for Taylor Lautner, who she dated briefly. He was in Twilight. He was Jacob, the werewolf. (laughs) Oh, we know. Anyways. Yes, you know. (laughs) Anyhow, but he actually just came on stage with her in Kansas City and he's in her new video. So it all comes back around (laughs) in the the land of Taylor. (laughs) Colin, what's your understanding of Taylor Swift, the artist versus Taylor Swift, the marketer? First off, I'll say I love Taylor Swift. That is Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager here at Caspian Studios and our marketing aficionado. I I still, to this day, will uh, occasionally play some songs. Fun fact, my first job that I ever had, the initiation was we had to sing karaoke, and I I sang Love Song by Taylor Swift. So that was was fun. So yeah, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. Like Obviously, this tour has had so many viral moments. The marketing is genius. I see so many posts on social media about the fans and, and all that she does. And it's just incredible to see and very inspiring. Yeah, it's a tour de force and why it's so fun to talk about. Yeah, my, my only sort of, I think, piece on this is when my son was a, a baby, he's still a baby, he's two, but, but when he was a, a little baby, the only song that would calm him down when we'd be getting ready to go is I Knew You Were Trouble and it would, it would always calm him down. And he would get super into it. So, and he really was just a little bit of trouble, just a little bit, just a tiny. nightmare dressed as a daydream. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. And so and they're having he, a tantrum. <laughs> well, I think they're, and the thing, reason, you know, kids like songs for whatever different reasons, but it's like they, they, my son specifically, he really likes music. And we pretty much play adult music for him. And so every time that where they're yelling, like, ah, he, that's, he would yell that. And it was really cute. But so, and I think that it speaks to sort of like, her having just such a a deep impact where like with so many people and just how unbelievably popular all of her all of her albums are and so 
which brings us to the Eras Tour. And fascinating for many ways, but like you said, Kim, that to do a celebration of your entire catalog when you're still going strong is really fascinating because these are all the songs that people love so much. And the idea that you could get to go see her now at age 33 rather than like when she's still doing this, you know, 20 years from now is really interesting and really exciting. And it seems like that they've ratcheted up to to, to levels that basically have never been done but done before. Meredith, tell us about the Eras Tour. Hmm. As you said, it's a really a celebration, a journey through all of her eras or her studio albums. In total, it's 131 concerts across five continents. It's expected to be the highest grossing tour in history, which is pretty wild. And I was reading that tickets are bringing in more than $13 million a night. They expect to bring in over a billion dollars overall. I read, I don't, I don't know because it's like, Tickets are being, you know, resold and all of that, but the average ticket costs around $254, but they go way, 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 way (laughs) up from that. What's wild is the Philadelphia Federal Reserve even reported that the tour is boosting economic growth, and they're kind of talking about specifically hotel revenue from people coming to stay for the concert her one concert for in this tour has a 44 song set list which seems like how do you even remember everything i was like how does she do it right seriously and the concert is about 3 hours long give or take i'm so incredibly grateful to you for going to such an effort to be with us tonight because um I love you so much, and I'm so excited for the little adventure we're going to go on for the next three hours and some change. I'm assuming it's more than that because 44 songs is a lot. I can only imagine she's like exhausted by the end of it. But the tour started March 17th. I didn't realize that it was in Glendale, which is like across town from me. And they actually renamed, officially renamed Glendale Swift City. So for two days, it was Swift City, Arizona. Where are we? Swift City! No better place to kick off Taylor Swift's U.S. tour than the newly renamed Swift City, Arizona. And I guess Kim was saying that other towns are doing the same and just sort of celebrating the Eras tour, which is, I didn't even know you could officially rename a town like that, but it's super cool. But the tour will wrap up August 17th in London, and that'll be the end of the Eras tour. So, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff to unpack there. For me, the idea that just as a in-person like events company, she could do a billion dollars a year. That is insane. Like (laughs) she is a machine, 131 concerts is absolutely insane, five continents. But the fact that just doing tickets, a billion dollars is crazy. And then who knows how many streams she's going to do because of so many people listening to her music before going to concerts the whole swift city everyone being excited about it like how much is this also building her catalog and from streaming revenue which i'm sure she makes absurd amounts of money from that but like it would be really interesting i don't know if like spotify is going to release this or whatever like what is the bump of of her streams in those cities during those times like it is crazy 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 what she's able to do and that's just in ticket sales right like doesn't include merch She's brilliant because with merch, she actually puts merch booths out around like outside the stadium that even if you don't have tickets, you can go and get the merch. Smart. So people are coming in just because maybe they couldn't get tickets or whatever it is, but they could still get a piece of like the Eras tour, right? And then you can also buy it on her website. And that's a little different, like compare and contrast from Beyonce's tour that's going on right now, which is also breaking records. But like with Beyonce, like you have to go to the the concert to get the merch like she's not making it accessible and available to everybody so it's more exclusive than inclusive which is a fascinating sort of like idea to Mm -hmm. to dissect those two so when are you going kim july 29th so in just under two weeks okay so you're going to we've been counting down since november (laughs) yeah so how how much merch are you are are you going to buy do they have merch that's specific just for the event i'd imagine right so it depends i'll say that as a marketer we happen to get VIP. So in your VIP box, you actually get like a poster that's specific to the the place that you're going to see it. Okay. But I don't think that they have merchandise that's specific for each city. We are actually not planning to buy any merch at the event because we don't want to schlep it around with us. 
So mm. we bought merch on the website prior oh. um, so that we don't have to carry it around with us because you can also only have like a little clear bag like this size. We have customized ours. Rep is the era I'll be wearing. So this little bag doesn't hold a lot, whole lot. So not planning to buy any merch at the show, but we bought it beforehand. And I also heard that at the show, she gives you a code so that after you can go on her website and buy it using the code and get a discount. So that's cool. Amazing. But I will get the lavender haze cocktail at the show. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I don't know what total number she's going to do for this, but just the fact that you know ticket sales are going to be a billion, merch is another X amount, all the streaming that's happening, all the other like you know activations and stuff post post event. I mean, this is like a massive, massive, massive thing. She's like a one woman stimulus package. I kid you not. Like it's predicted to be putting over $4 billion into the U S economy. Like our government could barely do that. Right. So here's this 33 year old, like blonde singer. And she is absolutely like crushing it. You know, like Meredith, you were saying like hotel rates, all of that stuff. They said in Kansas City, where she had her show, I think two weeks ago, that it was better than when the NFL draft came to town. Because with the NFL draft, people are going to like super specific things, right? But with this, there's really nothing else going on but the actual concert. So like people are out in town doing things, shopping, you know, a lot of the stores have like pop-up things. So, and Las Vegas reported that they had pre-pandemic, you know, hotel rates like booked out the whole city and just like that, that halo effect that this tour is having on everything from airline tickets and hotels to restaurants and, and retail establishments is incredible. But I really love the way that it's filtered down like waterfall effect. And it's now helping, you know, sites like Depop and Poshmark where, you know, kids, you know, my daughter has been making, cranking out these little friendship bracelets right? Because one of her songs says something like make the friendship bracelet. So now everybody's making these friendship bracelets and bringing them to the show to not only wear, but to trade with each other. Cause that's like Swifty mentality. It's like so cute. Like I have a Carm is the cat team, Jacob reputation. Like, you know, they're just really a fun way to express your individuality and like your favorite things about that whole culture. But you know, they're all selling them now on Depop and Poshmark and these sites. So you know, little like selling stickers, these 13 stickers and tattoos put on your hand for the show. So it's helping this whole little generation become entrepreneurs, which I think is so incredible. I talk about marketing and she's not keeping it for herself. She's like sharing it with everyone. And I think there's no greater power as a marketer than to, to empower others. And, and she's absolutely doing that. So does she do multiple shows in each city? Yeah. Yeah, I believe most have two or three nights and then mm -hmm. some really lucky cities like LA has six nights and Paris has six nights. I think those are the only two cities that have that many nights that I know of. And and each show is, you know, depending on the size of the stadium, like 50,000 people, 60,000 people, 70,000, 80,000, whatever it is. Yeah, I think they range from like 70 to 80 on average. But then what we're not taking into account is like, you know, 10 or 20,000 other friends who show up and stand outside in the parking lot and around the stadium who don't have tickets, but just want to be there and like feel the vibe and like have any shot of hearing it because it's so loud. Like, I don't know if you've seen videos on TikTok and on Instagram where like stadiums are shaking from this sheer like energy of 80,000 people. A seismologist determined that Swifties at last weekend shows at Lumen Field in Seattle caused the seismic equivalence of a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. Swifties don't just stand there and listen. They're all screaming <laughs> the lyrics. Like, I kid you not, at the top of their bloody lungs. And so stadiums are just physically shaking from, you know, 100,000 people just popping off. <laughs> to put it into perspective, she's basically, that's like half of the NFL games in a season that she's doing. And she's selling out like more than like an NFL stadium. Like it would essentially be like, <laughs> I mean, this is like absolutely like the NFL is like the biggest show in it's the biggest like TV event of every single year, you know, whatever. And she's doing this basically an entire NFL season just on her own. <laughs> it's totally. Yeah. Right. Girl boss. And I didn't, by the way, I should say <laughs> 
I was not like in on any of this. I'm not, you know, I, I, I did not know any of this before we started talking about it in our prep call and, and have like since looked into it. I mean, this is like mind blowing stuff. It's crazy. It's like and absolutely crazy. Down to like the fact, like the things people are wearing to these shows, like you don't just show up in like a t-shirt and jeans, like people are like full on embracing this whole like sequence and glitter and sparkle and fuzzy fur. And, you know, I was telling Meredith, my daughter has spent like 50 hours, like sewing a dress to wear. Like, is there anyone here tonight who put a lot of effort into what you were going to wear or memorizing lots of lyrics? Oh my yeah, gosh. and people are, are going as like super unhinged, like funny things that like may play homage to like a, a lyric or the fact that, you know, Taylor Swift was in Cats, a guy dressed up as her character from Cats and like she spotted him in the audience and she was like, you know, <laughs> like it just, it's great. You know, the amount of personality that, that folks are bringing to this. I'm like, just for me, like the amount of joy that people get from interacting in this way and attending it and just getting to be themselves. And, you know, again, dress up in like fun things that, you know, how often, like, I guess Barbie's coming out too, which will be something similar, but how often can you literally like show up at something covered in sparkles and sequins and glitter, like more is more and just have the bloody time of your life belting out songs and with 70,000 people who feel the same way. So it's cool. I guess it's like, the Grateful Dead is all about like the tie dye and that whole vibe. And this is like, you know, the sparkly version of that. <laughs> so obviously she has hundreds and hundreds of millions of listens and she has like an army of fans and she has all this stuff. And so she, she has been around in like our lives forever. Kim, in, in the case of your children, she's been around their entire life. <laughs> right? She's been making music essentially their entire lives. So she has obviously such a massive following, which is extremely hard to build, but it's built over, you know, 20 years. This is, this is a long time coming. So when she does this thing, obviously, to be able to see this, but she has created such a spectacle and it's a must-see experience and you only get to sort of experience it if you're there and you're doing all of this and it's, you know, accentuated, obviously, anyone in marketing would love to have this sort of thing, but it's so hard to build momentum over time. Like it just takes a lot of time. Well, as marketers, we have 18 months, right? So Kim, how, how do you think about some of these takeaways from a marketing perspective and, and things we could actually put into our own B2B marketing? Yeah. So, you know, the whole reason I picked the Eros tour and Taylor specifically is because as a content marketer, you know, my whole point of my job is to create content, right? And to create a mixture of content that will resonate across a customer journey or through different parts of the funnel, all the way from tofu to bofu, top of funnel, the bottom of funnel. And what I love is a lot of my content strategy has been building really modular approaches to content and building blocks. You'll hear a lot of folks in content marketing talk about, you know, creating a big rock piece and then breaking it out to lots of little things. So sometimes you'll create an ebook, right? But then you'll turn that into a bunch of blog posts or infographic, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, what I love that Taylor Swift has done has been obviously releasing an album, so nothing new there, but then all of the things she does along the way, like Meredith was saying, like she has all these Easter eggs, whether they're in her lyrics or her videos. And so her fans, like, lean into her content right and they like are really engaged in it and they're looking through it and they're looking for these little clues and hints so it's super engaging and what she's done with this tour is she's also taken people and these albums have now been out for for years some of them almost 20 years since her debut album called taylor swift but when you think Timberland, i hope you think my favorite song right and she's bringing them back to that content and, and i think that's just brilliant right because a lot of times you know i work with the demand gen team and i'll write an ebook and it's like okay great that was great for that campaign and then it's like whoosh, moving on you know and i'm like no 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 that's all perfectly relevant content <laughs> like we should reuse that we should recycle it we should repurpose that and that's exactly what Taylor Swift is doing 
when she is re-releasing these albums because she's now driving eyeballs or ears back to, you know, that content. And what's really smart about it is because the way she was able to renegotiate her contract because she wrote those songs, she now owns them. And so when she re-releases an album with whatever the album name is, like Speak Now, Taylor's version, she will re-record the song. She actually adds new content to it. So like content from the vault that wasn't on the original edition. And so it's adding more value. So that would be like if I took an old ebook that I had written and then put on an extra bonus chapter and like re-released it, right? So I think there's a ton of lessons we can learn as marketers to go back and refresh and repurpose our content. And I get a ton of inspiration from that. And really this drawer has brought so many ideas to me in that, in that regard. Yeah, I think that so much time and so much craft goes into thinking through those things. And as a creator, most of us are tinkerers in some way. And you got to get something out, even if it's 80%, you got to get it out. And I'm sure that Taylor had things that she wanted to do. And maybe the studio gave her notes and, and she actually wanted to do it a certain way. And even though people, you know, you fall in love with the original thing, but you can add something to it later. And maybe there's some level to that. And I think that, you know, it's a great, it's a great point there. It's also just interesting going back and like looking at old things of like, what was the time like then and the process like then? So if you create an ebook, you know, six years ago, what are the things that are still relevant? What were, what were the things you got right? What were the things you got wrong? Like, that's another part of the process of like understanding that and saying like, oh, this is why we thought this was going to be the case. Like we were going to invest a bunch into thinking about AI six years ago and look at where we're at now. We also thought about crypto and that sort of went weird and I don't know if I'm making stuff up but you know what I mean and, and I think it's an important part to not just sort of like refresh it but also like look back at sort of the process of how you create that and people are interested in that sort of thing they want to know what your process is for making this like why you're making it because so much of content marketing is to sell rather than to like be something that's like super valuable well <laughs> we could talk about that in depth because I'm a firm believer that you should create content that's valuable. There's so much noise out there these days, right? And especially now that people are just using AI to just like rip content out. And it's like, if your content isn't adding value, then you're just creating more noise. And I'm not for that. You know, and it, it's interesting with, with Taylor Swift too, and that, you know, you're talking about like going back and thinking about things. And with this Speak Now that she just re-released, Speak Now Taylor's version, there's the first album she wrote all the songs on. And she wrote it, you know, when she was 18 or 19 years old. She's 33 now. As we travel back in time through 17 years of music, one era at a time. Is that okay with you? So think about how she probably feels about these songs now. Like they're nostalgic for her, I'm sure. I'm sure they bring back like a lot of things she was feeling. But there were songs on this newly released version that weren't on the original, right? Because she was also that age and maybe those songs weren't maybe as appropriate then as they are now that she's a 33-year-old. And, and she's come under great scrutiny for, you know, her dating or, you know, the relationship she's had or, or different things. And she always takes that and like parlays it into content, which I think is is really interesting. And, you know, as marketers, we can always be learning from our everyday experiences as a content marketer. I especially do that. And I think there's, there's so much value in it. So, you know, always be doing that. I was just thinking how, Kim, like you said, she's been under such scrutiny. And I remember she's had, like, dark days, too, right? Like, I, I think it was she, like, started dating. I, I'm going to get it wrong. But she started dating somebody and there was, like, oh, why would she date him? And, like, so much, like, scrutiny over personal life. But she has, like... I think because of those kind of darker days made it possible for her to like skyrocket upwards even faster because it's just been a cool comeback to see her make and then kind of becoming a voice for artists. So like you said, it's cool that she leans into those relationships, talks about her exes and doesn't act like it didn't happen. And I think just like accepting your accepting your mistakes and even like shining light on them is almost better from a PR perspective. 
she's being authentic and genuine, which is so hard to find, especially in celebrity, right? And that's what I think is also a great reflection for marketing. Be authentic and genuine because guess what? Your prospects and customers can totally see through it when you're not, right? Don't just like give it FaceTime or or like voice time to it when it's actually not who you are or what you stand for because they can see that from a mile away. And she's also spoken out because, you know, she dated Jake Jillian Hall and that's what that song All Too Well is about. You know, he kept her red scarf and like the whole thing. And left my scarf there at your sister's house and you've still got it in your drawer even now and fans like swifties can be crazy like i kid you not they will go to battle for her and like they were like cyberbullying him like it was bad and so when she re-released speak now taylor's version there's a song dear john on it about john mayer and she specifically said like do not go after john mayer like I, you know, like be nice, be good. I don't need you to fight my battles. I'm a grown up. Like it's all good. It's water under the bridge, but this is the song I wrote. And so like, let's all be nice. So I like that, that too. Like, she's like, okay, there are boundaries and she, you know, doesn't believe in all of that. And she did have a dark time where she had to go basically disappeared for a year, you know, after the whole Kanye thing. And yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. At the awards show where he came up and said, you don't deserve this award. Beyonce does. And she like sobbed like it was hard. She was so young. So, you know, it's like she's done a lot of growing up, too. And I think she understands that there are boundaries. And when her fans cross them, she's not afraid to call them out on it, too. So that's good. Being a, a good citizen of the world. Kim, so what's your content strategy? Yeah. So, so when you said earlier, you know, like we're just creating all this stuff and, you know, I, I actually don't believe that like in a nutshell, I've always, and you can ask anybody who's worked alongside me, I believe in creating content for humans and then like optimizing the hell out of it for SEO so that when a human like finds it, it's actually valuable. You know, there's such an overwhelming amount of information out there on the interwebs and in my DNA. I just don't want to add to the noise. If I'm going to spend my time and my effort on something, I want it to be valuable. I want it to be, I want it to be something I'm proud of. And, you know, if someone listens to our content or they read an article or a blog and they've gotten some nugget out of it, something they can do in their job better, makes them a better, you know, employee or helps them do their job better, right? That's a win for me. And you you just never know, like content isn't always a short game. And sometimes I feel like other parts of the organization expect it to be like, it's just like a light switch and you flick it on. It's like, okay, we've got leads and pipeline, but it's not always that literal, you know, you can't always realize, you know, those closed deals, like in the same quarter, it's a longer play. And as an example, I was at an email service provider that I worked for and we had about 250,000 subscribers to our blog. And we always had, you know, great content in there in our newsletter that we would send out to promote the blog. And, and one day I got a slack from our sales team and they were kind of like, holy beep, you know, like, oh my God, we just got an amazing inbound lead. And that inbound lead turned into a closed deal for $2 million. And they came in because they had been reading our blog and getting our newsletter for two years before they came inbound. And when they needed to make a change, we were top of mind. And that kind of like the golden story, right? Like that's why content exists. And again, it's, it's not a a sprint. It's that marathon analogy. And, you know, so you kind of never know when that's going to happen, but that's a great example of it. Yeah. I mean, I think content marketing, this stat that has been going around recently a lot more, which is, you know, 95% of the time people aren't ready or aren't in the buying mode 5% of the time they are. So you need to be making content for people in the 95%. Like that is the thing, like the two years that that person was sitting there, they weren't yet ready to buy. And it might have been, yeah, that might have been your fault. It might have been their fault, right? Like, and not that everyone's at fault, but like maybe they weren't ready to switch or maybe they weren't in the right budget cycle or maybe they couldn't afford it or maybe a million things could be happening. But you have to get in front of them during the 95%. And the 95% of time is not about buying. It's not content about buying. It's not content about 
purchasing. It's not content about implementation. It's not any of that stuff. It just has to be things that help them in their career and all the other things that they do that aren't directly related to the solution that you're offering. Yeah, it's like laying the, those little like seeds, you know, that hopefully will one day like, bloom and be this nice like forest or garden or whatever analogy you want to use. But it's it's planting that all along the way and adding value and whether that's through thought leadership or whatever it was. But I love that story because I'm sure they were super annoyed by their ESP that whole time. And they were just like waiting for their moment for all the stars to align so they could like be like, yes. <laughs> You know, and in that point, they were probably the internal advocate, right? And went to whoever the buying committee was and was like, hey, check these guys out. We should vet them. They're a great solution. And I think that like, who knows how many times sales reached out to that person in those two years. And maybe maybe they ghosted them for, you know, 40 straight emails because they weren't, you know, ready <laughs> yet. Like, hey, I see you read every email, you know, whatever. But that's part of it, right? Is like, how do you create uh, an always on campaign? that doesn't need a salesperson to be emailing and talking to them. Like, that's the point of it. People are, that's why you're a passive buyer. Like if you wanted to be, you know, pestered by sales, you would opt into that. We all know how to do that. You just like, we all know how to talk to a salesperson, you know? Well, that's why I love giving really good, different, interesting content to my sales team too, right? Because it's something like, I'm like, literally, like I'm handing you this on a, a silver platter. Like, here's how you can use this with a prospect or, you know, here's how you can use it, upsell a customer. And for that, I feel like that's how you get that symbiotic relationship going between marketing and sales, right? How do you think about ROI as it relates to your content marketing? So it's funny. I actually worked for a CMO once and I was doing a presentation to him about like different parts of content marketing. He's like, ah, He's like, content marketing is like PR, right? Like you can't measure it. It's like fuzzy. I was like, oh, <laughs> let me prove you wrong. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a ton of KPIs that can be measured on. And, you know, I'm not going to mention kind of table stakes things like, you know, page views and like SEO rankings, like all that stuff is fine. But, you know, most content marketers you'll talk to today are going to have goals around MQLs and pipeline and you know, being able to to show that and directly tie that back because today we can measure and attribute everything. We use UTM parameters on everything. I was sending Meredith some links. I'm like, please use this UTM parameter. <laughs> like yeah, I right. want to be able to measure this. And so really thinking about, you know, that and how it does generate results. And obviously not everything we do produces MQLs. There's some things that are top of funnel, but thinking about all of the ways in which we're we're adding value to the sales team, whether you know we're we're giving them those assets that help open up a conversation, or like our sales team had an event and they invited high value prospects to see Taylor Swift actually <laughs> at her show she did outside of New York. And they reached out to me and they're like, oh, we don't know. They're like, can you write the email? And I'm like, I got you. And they sent that email out and like they had way too many people asking to be invited, right? So it's like little things like that that I think we can do to add value. And so you measure that ROI, like I'm like, hey, can marketing get some of the like touch of that, uh, you know, those deals that get closed because of that event, because, you know, we help. So thinking about those, all those types of things. And, you know, a lot of times too, we're thinking about, when you're measuring ROI, you're not always taking in the human element and like the time and the effort of all the people on the team that touch it because I don't create content in a silo, right? I can create all the magical words in the world, but like if my design team doesn't bring it to life in an engaging format, if the demand gen team doesn't take it out and get it in front of the right people, right? If social, organic social doesn't promote it, like it takes all of that effort coming together and we're not always measuring that when we're looking at the ROI. Right. So you have to take that into account. And I think it's starting to get really interesting, especially as you're now hearing more and more about AI and a lot more people are using AI. And, you know, as a content marketer, I'm also like, hey, am I going to be replaced by AI? Because everyone's like, oh, psh, just throw it in AI and let it write it. I'm like, girl, no, <laughs> you still need a human being to like back check all of that, you know, to have sources to make sure it makes sense, you know, because AI is essentially kind of just scraping it off all these sources on the internet. So we need to be really responsible with our use of AI too, but I'm really excited about it from the way it can help 
improve efficiencies and actually help ROI because if I'm more efficient and I can create maybe outlines faster or I can use AI to create some things and then devote more of my time to the more high value things. And that's really exciting for me. It can help us get better ROI. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the attribution piece on content has gotten so much better that it's it's actually better than it ever has been. But I think that marketers really need to fight for attribution rather than like trying to like prove their campaigns. Because I think that part of the problem is like if you have like a first touch, last touch attribution model, let's just say, and it's like, hey, the first you know time that we talked to this person was at an event two years ago. And then the last time a salesperson emailed them and that's what you're tracking. And they read 40 emails in between and you don't credit the content marketing team that was writing those emails. Like, or, you know, if you don't create any type of attribution there and it's the holistic, like some of all of the parts, like that's part of the problem. And I think that so often marketers don't get a seat at the table or content marketing specifically to like drive, like how we are acquiring accounts like how are we attributing marketing success that way and so you don't even ever even get a vote to begin with so if you're like there's not even a way for the current way that we do attribution for me to ever get credit like like they're never right i can never even get credit from any of the activities that we even do like there's no way unless someone like you're touching so many pain points for me right now yeah no (laughs) like they're gonna read they're gonna uh, read your company email update and then immediately respond and say, I want a demo. Like no one would ever do that, but like they still read the company update. You know what I mean? It's, it's anyways. Yeah, no, you're, you're hitting so many things. And, you know, I've been at all different kind of ages and stages and sizes of companies from series A all the way up to big ones. And it's like, nobody has this attribution, like perfectly done. And I've been in first touch. I've been in last touch. I've been in places we're trying to do multi-touch and, you know, and that's where we are today at Lob. And we're actually doing this really interesting kind of breakdown of like tracking all the touches. So if it's like content, you know, maybe email on another channel, I'll touch this as it came in, this MQL. It's like, then we're dividing that. And like you get a third and you get a third and like you get a third. <laughs> and so we are trying to, you know, really make sure that that we're giving credit to all those different places. And you know, I loved you saying like content doesn't often get a seat there. And I'm of the mindset of like, if you don't have a seat at the table, you better damn well get a chair and drag it to the table and get your voice heard because this is affecting our our performance, our careers, our success. And so if you don't have a seat at the table, either get yourself one there or get yourself an advocate who does have a seat at the table. And that brings us back to Taylor Swift, who's very good about doing that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you have any uh, favorite pieces of content or campaigns that you've done at Lob? I mean, of course. <laughs> so I happen to be a very like data-driven content marketer. And even though I majored in communications, I'm like a huge data nerd. I wasn't great at math for some reason, but I love numbers and I love data. And so anything that has like hardcore numbers behind it, whether it be like results driven case studies or something I love to do. I've been at many companies where you read the case studies and you're like, oh, that's a cute, nice little story. But like, what the hell happened? Where are the results? Like, what are the numbers? You know, like show me the numbers. So the the two pieces at Lob that I'm incredibly excited and passionate about are two thought leadership reports that we put out on an annual basis. And one is the state of direct mail. And that's really from a marketer standpoint. And then the sister report to that is the state of direct mail consumer insights. So we have sort of both sides of the envelope, so to speak. But both of these, we go out and we survey either, you know, marketers or consumers. And then we take all of these data points, you know, hundreds and hundreds of data points and really package them up into these tight reports. We do a webinar, we do like one pagers by industry. And so really taking, again, that big rock piece of content and breaking it down into all its kind of permutations. Um, And I'm really kind of the spokesperson for that whole campaign because I work from the time it's raw data all the way through to sort of completion on it. So it's lovely that I get to touch it at every stage and then see it through. And it's all data-based, which is is incredibly cool. And when you get to own your own data, that's a, a nice place to be as a content marketer. 
And then the other piece of content that I really love, it's a new channel for us and it's a podcast. It's our, it's our Lobcast podcast and it's mixers and marketing. So we mix up a cocktail and each episode, we have a different theme and Stephanie Donaldson's our, our senior content marketer and she kind of heads up our podcast. I think we're about 18 episodes in. So it's been really nice to just explore a new channel and to start to grow an owned audience and, and leverage that. But it's really in its infancy. As you guys know, during podcasts, there's so much more for us to do and to, to really expand on that. And then you have something really cool coming up with the 2023 State of Direct Mail Consumer Insights Report. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so the State of Direct Mail Consumer Insights is coming out this week. So very fortuitous that we're talking right now. And we partnered up with a company called Compare Media. And we surveyed about 2,000 U.S. consumers aged 18 and older all around their perceptions of direct mail. And I think a lot of the, the results in the report are pretty surprising, specifically around like the virality of direct mail and how many consumers share it. So like over 50% of people will actually share a direct mail offer with a, a friend or a colleague, which is kind of interesting and not something we often think about. So as a marketer, I'm like, oh, that's a good data point, right? Like I can make my offers more shareable by including maybe like a QR code for you and one for your friend. The report also contains four or five different industry breakouts. So talking about like what direct mail formats consumers like from like healthcare or insurance. We talk about the fact that 71% of consumers actually read their direct mail immediately or save it to read later. So that's a really interesting component. So it's just like chock full of all these incredible data nuggets that are really insightful as direct mail practitioners or just marketers in general, because we know there's probably that any company, not just like someone who has a job of direct mail, only 7% of marketers use it as a standalone tactic. So we really call it like a wingman or wing person for all of the digital tactics that that marketers are using today. You know, we find 72% of marketers use direct mail with email. And another 50% are using it with like SMS or paid social. So it's a really nice additional touch point throughout that customer journey. What's so fascinating to me about this, because, you know, we have talked about direct mail a bunch in the past, you and I, not on the podcast, <laughs> but like the idea that this sort of the same thing with like the air is replacing the marketer thing. It's so fascinating to me because content marketing is so much more dynamic than ever before. And really, like, you could just take the word content off and it's just marketing, B2B marketing. But, like, what is your direct mail strategy? What is your, like, show strategy? Like, your video podcasts and, and social video strategy, things like that. These are things that, like, really weren't in B2B marketing budget items, like, for the past, like, 10 years, really. And these channels having, you know, being a part of this broader thing, like, it's not just the digital channels. It's not just pouring money into Facebook and Google. There's other ways to create leverage. And I think that that stuff is really exciting because you can be so creative. Yes, someone has to write the content. Yes, there are things like AI that can help with that. But like, how do you craft a really meaningful, beautifully designed, interesting looking piece of direct mail or, or, or send them something that's interesting, that's relevant? So many things that you can do there and like, that is someone who has to be strategic in their thinking and also tactical in the way they can execute. Yeah, very smart. And, you know, I, I love that. And I like that evolution as marketers too, because even, I don't know, seven years ago, let's say, like so much of what we were doing, we were trying to like build our house on rented land. And what I mean by that is like, you know, on Facebook or on social media platforms or, you know, using Google and they like just incre keep increasing, you know, the cost of your AdWords. And, and it's really tough. And I'm such a big proponent for like growing your own audience and like delivering as much value as you can to them. And, you know, whether that's through like growing your email list and, you know, that's often a lot of marketers will say like, have you ever met a marketer? I'll ask you guys who's like, we have perfect data. Our data is like, I have all the data I need like said no one ever. So like, if you do have some data though, what I love is that ability to like append it. What we'll find is a lot of people will come to us and be like, all right, I have this huge list of email addresses, but I don't have physical addresses. How the heck am I going to do direct mail? And we're like, well, that's easy enough these days because you can append it and get those physical mailing addresses. Right. And then you can further like verify those addresses before you ever send it. 
And, you know, lob in our, our DNA is also not just like the spray and pray, like mass mailers. We're not doing those like envelopes full of like junk that you get. We're all about being really targeted and, you know, and sending mailing, mailing to like cohorts and segments of your audience and mailing less, fewer mail pieces. So you're sustainable and doing good sustainability practices, but like you're sending less and it's more targeted. So what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get a better response rate, right? You're going to have better ROI. So using it strategically. And and that's what I really love And, and thinking about coordinating it with your digital touch point. So like, oh, you know, you were saying it might take 40 emails for, for someone to engage. Well, it's like somewhere along those 40 emails, insert a piece of direct mail and then send that email. It's like, hey, you might have go check your mailbox. You might have a surprise in there, right? And then have them scan that QR code that then brings them back to the digital experience. So they have a really nice synergy between them. Awesome. Kim, well, I think Taylor would be happy with our effort today. It's been wonderful, wonderful having you on the show. Thank you. So, so fun about talking Swifties. For our listeners, you can go to lob.com. It's lob.com. Learn more about direct mail and the really cool stuff that you're doing. Go check out the Insights Report, which which will be out as we are listening to this podcast. And follow along with the Ares Tour to see how much this thing really takes off over the course of the rest of the summer. Kim, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I'm going to show you my daughter's dress that she spent 50 hours sewing. Yes. <laughs> oh it's from God. Lover Era. So if you got any Swifties on, she took like three different dresses, deconstructed them. <laughs> so I had to, I had to finish with that, give her some props and, you know, but anybody who's going, if you see me there, come up, we'll trade friendship bracelets and we'll sing our hearts out. And thank you guys so much for having me. It's, the best part of my job when I can marry up things that I'm absolutely passionate about, like content marketing and Taylor Swift. So thanks for giving me the platform to talk about it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kim. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.